following aviation podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 112, Cold Weather Flying, coming up in this episode of Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Zyko, Sean Moody, Eric Crump, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Welcome back to the Stuck Mike Avcast. We have an incredible show this evening. I am so excited to have my favorite aviation cold weather flying friends. And uh, one of them actually is in very chilly weather right now, who's been complaining about it. And that is <laughs> our, our friends up north. Oh, wait a minute. He's up north now. This is, this is really, really confusing to me. Eric Crumb, welcome. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I told this uh before I, I live in florida for a reason and um i'm actually in washington dc tonight uh for a uh for an fa meeting a part of a working group that i participate on and um i knew it was going to be bad but still when you step off the airplane you can see your your breath in the jetway you know you're way too far north and uh it's mighty chilly for me anyway for with my thin florida blood but i will survive and i will be back in the 85 degrees come thursday it's so always good. nice. It's a few to more back. days. Two more days. I'm good to go. <laughs> well, and you're doing something really cool. Uh, can you tell us what you're doing up there? Yeah, so I, I work on a working group. Uh, it's in FAA and industry, and um, our working group, we're the Airman Certification System Working Group. And if you have heard about the new Airman uh, certification standards that will replace the practical test standards that we use today, um, that's what our group is doing. Um, and we're um, actively working on all the new stuff coming down the pipe, getting the private and instrument ACS ready for implementation, hopefully this summer. Um, so the the PTSs will eventually, one by one, they'll go away, and the new Airman certification standards will replace them, and they are better in every imaginable way. Interesting, really interesting. Um, any, any dates as far as, or do we want to guess when this is all going to be finished? Well, the plan is June. We, we want to implement in June, get private instrument out in the field. And there are obviously, as you can imagine, quite a lot of things that have to happen for that to actually take place. But uh, we're optimistic and think that it, uh, it certainly can happen. And that's what we're pushing for. Awesome. Uh, we can't wait to hear more about that. And when it does happen, I'm sure you're going to come on and talk all about it, I hope. I- I promise a special session just awesome. on the ACS. And, you know, I think there's somebody that's an even a, a colder destination than you are this evening. I, I'm pretty sure. And, uh, <laughs> I'm sure, too. <laughs> and that's Larry Overstreet. Larry, welcome. Hello from the frozen north. How cold is it there, really? Well, let's see. Right now, we are showing one degree and uh, wind chill tomorrow is supposed to be about 30 below, I believe. Wow. That's, so, that's insane. <laughs> that that's is insane. insane. Human beings should not live in those conditions. It's <laughs> just that's that that hurts me just hearing it. And my skin's crawling. I, I saw I saw a meme on Facebook the other day that had a little cartoon character that said, uh, the air hurts my face. And then it said, why do I live in a place where the air hurts my face? <laughs> and I couldn't answer that. Well, the air hurts my face in August in Florida, so it's the same. I guess it's the same principle. It's just which season is it? Oh, maybe, maybe they. Uh, and I tell you, it's interesting because we all adjust to to weather in different ways. And we're gonna, we're going to talk a little bit about how airplanes adjust to that that cold weather in a little bit. But before we do that, let me move on to our next guest and co-host here this evening, Tom Frick. Tom, welcome uh, from sunny and warm Florida. I'm assuming. Sunny and warm, I guess so. The first number in the temperature this morning was a four, and I went back to bed. <laughs> I hear that. And do they? They must preheat your engines at that temperature because uh, they're so cold. They feel colder, don't they? It does. You know, it, it, for me, that's really cold. I can't. You guys are talking about these minus numbers. I don't know what that is. Wow. Wow. Well, I I actually just uh, came in from 12-degree weather and snow in Buffalo, New York, uh, just a couple days ago, and that was bitter, bitter cold. And it took me about a day just to thaw out from all that weather. Just That was just nuts. And also was able to uh, actually 
uh, get uh, some de-icing done in ice pellets. We had some really uh, some ice pellets happening in New York, so I got a, a whole you know view of different cold weather operations. But uh, actually, the next person that's gonna is with us this evening. We're gonna kick off this discussion about cold weather operations, uh, starting with IFR uh, flying, and uh, it's uh, Russ Roslowski who uh, who has quite a bit of experience. Welcome to the, to the show. Back to the show, Russ. Yeah, thanks, Carl. And uh, just for everybody, so everybody knows, it was 57 degrees, calm and sunny here in Oklahoma City today, so very pleasant. Well, I can't complain because there was a 7 in the number uh, of where I was today, so I'm pretty happy and pretty warm. But like I said, just a couple days ago, I was up north. Let's do the pre-flight. Well, let's let's get moving in. We don't have many announcements because we have a whole bunch to talk about this evening, but we do. Uh, Russ has a really important announcement, so let's move into the announcements. This is something that's going to affect all of us, and uh, it, it it's actually I think it could be a good thing moving forward, depending on how it's implemented. Russ, tell us a little bit about the uh, information that you have on on the new certificates. Okay, so this was just uh, released in the final rule today, uh, as we're recording this. Um, so it'll, it'll just be a few days ago when uh, people are listening to this. And it takes effect April 1st. And what's happening is the student pilot certificates that we're all used to, the, uh, you know, you go to get your, you know, when you were a student, you went to get your medical certificate. And uh, along with it, it said, and student pilot certificate along with the, you know, the class three medical or whatever. Well, that whole concept is going away. And they are splitting it up. You will get a medical certificate from your uh, medical examiner and you will get a separate plastic student pilot certificate. So, you know, you expect it's going to look just like the regular pilot certificates, except for it'll say student pilot on it. So that raises the question, well, how do I get this now? They're not doing it at the, uh, at the medical examiner's office. Uh, so what people are going to have to do, and there are several ways you can get this, uh, the, the most reasonable and Undoubtedly, the most likely way is through your flight instructor, although uh, examiners and, and uh, the, uh, the FAA offices and stuff can do it too. But, of course, the, the flight instructor will be the most accessible there. Uh, it'll be filled out through IACRA, which you know those of us who are pilots are familiar with, but a student pilot will have to be kind of walked through that. And what's going to happen after that is, is the cause of probably a little bit of concern. Uh, for uh, timeliness, because what's, we all know that it takes, you know, it can take up to four months or sometimes to get your plastic pilot certificate after you pass a, you know, a check ride for a new rating. Well, if it takes this long for your, your, uh, you know, your student pilot certificate, uh, we'll, we'll get into that in, the, in just a minute. But the um, the IACRA application then goes to the FAA after your flight instructor signs it. I suppose this hasn't, you know, really been. You know, revealed how it's going to work. Um, then it goes from the FA over to the TSA because of the security uh, uh, issues, which is one reason why they're going to this pilot certificate for everybody. So the TSA does whatever it is they do. They send back to the FA whether you approved or not, and uh, then the FA will send you your uh, plastic student pilot certificate. Uh, this certificate doesn't expire like the current ones in two or five years like your medical does but it stays good and and um what the real concern here is is the processing time right so currently if you know if you if i as a flight instructor get a brand new student and he shows up you know calls me up and we meet we we can start flying that day and as long as he goes in to get his medical exam and a student pilot certificate sometime before he solos everything's good of course if we in this new procedure you got to send a wafer so that student cannot solo that airplane until they get back that student pilot certificate whereas before the the time list was just when you could get an appointment with your medical examiner or uh, there were a few other ways to do it but that was the normal way now we're waiting to get that plastic certificate in the mail before you can solo so in the rule, the FAA states that they're working with the, the uh, TSA to try to get this process down to down to three weeks or less, uh, which wouldn't be too bad. But uh, we all know there are accelerated training programs out there, uh, you know, where the student might solo in you know on a second week of training or so if he's flying every day, something like that. So what this is really going to require is advanced planning, really. Uh, 
there's nothing to stop any uh, prospective student pilot from getting with their flight instructor several weeks before they want to start flying and get this process going so there's no delay. But CFIs especially need to be need to be aware of that. I know that there are several people I've flown with who have, you know, we've started flying and then they say, you know, I'm, I want to start flying first before I go and get my medical and do all that kind of thing just to see if I like it, right? Well, it wasn't too much of a problem before. But, uh, but yeah, now, I mean, they say three weeks or less, but I mean, you know how these things are, new, new system, new procedures. At first, yeah, it, it might take a little longer. <laughs> you know? so, so I guess it remains to be seen what, what's going to happen with this, uh, this new implementation. Like I said, uh, it's going to be effective on April 1st of 2016. Uh, it's not an April Fool's joke as far <laughs> as, uh, as far as we can tell. Um, but, but that's the deal. And, and we'll, uh, we'll have a link to the, uh, I guess, to the final rule on, on this, uh, the, the episode's uh, webpage here. Well, this, this is quite interesting, actually. Uh, it's so it never expires. It's, uh, you know, cause you do have student pilots, right. That do, uh, actually theirs expires because it's taking so long for them to say, get a medical. Uh, but this is really something that is, is a good idea. Uh, it's just the implementation that I think is is going to be quite interesting. Um, I have uh, have a question, but I think also Tom, you you wanted to ask something, didn't you? Yeah, Russ. I was, you know, I listened to that. I was, what are what's going to happen to the current student pilot licenses? Are they they going to grant be grandfathered in, or are they going to, or current students going to be expected to get certificated as well? No, it the the rule actually actually referred to that exact situation that they will be grandfathered in until they you know get their. You know, until theirs expires or they get their uh, their real license, uh, you know, whatever, their private license or whatever. Okay, so this will be for new students after April 1st, 2016. That's correct, yes. So on the day of April 1st, you have a new student. Um, you make sure they get their student pilot certificate before that, possibly, if there's any any slowdowns, et cetera. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you, you know, you talked a little bit about the TSA and if it expanded on that. Uh, so we are looking at a, a much deeper, uh, I'm assuming from this rule, uh, a deeper uh, view at somebody's background as far as the TSA's clearance is concerned, that type of that, thing? Yeah, that's what I would assume too. Uh, it didn't go into a whole, whole lot of detail in the, the final rule other than to say it would be sent over there for proper security vetting and didn't really say what that was going to involve. As far, I don't know, background checks or whatever. I, I, I couldn't say. Hopefully we'll get more information uh, as the the date approaches, but the, you know the date's only what, two and a half months away. So right, right. Well, this I, I'm, I'm, what I'm really hoping is that that you know AOPA or you know, or NAFI or one of the other organizations will put some kind of you know I'm sure they'll be all over this and they'll get some kind of information out. Yeah, it seems they already have been, and they, I've seen some discussions online. And uh, you know this is it's yeah it's a good idea, but uh, you know as we all know things sometimes take longer. Than expected, uh, especially when it goes through a governmental process. Uh, but I'm going to be the eternal optimist and hope this goes well, and hope it hopefully has been tested, etc. Uh, but it'll be neat. They can have their own little uh, pilot certificate as opposed to their medical, and, and the medical must come with them once they solo, etc. So it'll be interesting where we see the different endorsements and all, and where they'll be placed. Well, so, you know that that Carl, that was actually brought up, um, and. So as a result, now you you will not get a solo endorsement of any sort on your pilot certificate because, well, it's plastic. It's plastic, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can't write on it. So that actually is one thing I like. I always thought that the idea of endorsing the, the back of, of the, uh, the student pilot certificate and doing a logbook endorsement was kind of duplication of effort, really. But uh, so now it's just going to be in the logbook. And in the final rule, they, you know, at the end, they state, you know, Every single paragraph in Part 61, it's going to be changed, and what's going to be changed too, and and that's one of them. Interesting, interesting. So, hopefully, we will see this go through a smoother, smooth process. And I'd like to get people's feedback uh, if you have had some experience with this once April first comes around, and if it's been positive or negative, let us know. Uh, but this is good information because uh, a lot of times these things are are sprung upon us without having any prior knowledge, even though this has been out there as as a proposed rule for how long was it again? Uh, a couple of years. But yeah, actually, I, it, according to this final rule, it, it was first sent out in 2010. <laughs> so, so that's probably so that's, why we've all forgotten about it. And right. 
<laughs> moved on. Right, yeah. and that and that happens. I mean, with especially with these these proposed rulemakings, and so interesting stuff. I really, uh, I'd, I'd like to hear, especially uh, Eric, uh, any concerns as far as like with your your students uh, and having so many that must be placed through this process of of getting the student pile certificates. Are you, are you at all concerned about this? I'm not really no, and I, I think actually it's a positive change. Um, like a lot of people, I learned about this today. I mean, I, I, this all stems back to the whole, you know, eventually want a, a, a photo ID pilot certificate. And this is all part of that eventual migration uh, to that. But we had the manager of AFS 800 in our meeting today, and he was kind of talking, doing a brief on what it is and, and why they're doing it. And um, I don't think most pilots are aware that the TSA actually runs the pilot database every week through, uh, I mean, so they're constantly doing background checks on every certificated pilot in the system. Um, but the TSA's concern is that they've never had a way to capture that information before someone solos. And so that's the whole motivation for going to the issued a student pilot certificate before solo, because that means they can be vetted by TSA uh, before they're uh, allowed to solo an airplane, which, which makes sense. But in terms of the volume issue... I, I got concerns uh, sent to me today from um, a couple of accelerated training schools that I know of. Like, well, you know, our students are only here for two weeks. So waiting three weeks to get a student positive won't work. But there's no way for them to meet with the instructor if they're coming in from out of town or from out of country. You know, how are we going to do that? And um, and I think that, that may be a little bit of a hurdle. I don't think it's quite as big of a deal as we initially think it is. Um, because the requirement for the CFI is to validate English language proficiency um, primarily. That's the primary job. You don't have to do the TSC, TSA citizenship validation. All you're doing is validating that they can speak English and they have a photo ID. I mean, that, that's basically what you're doing um, in order to be able to issue the certificate. I don't think from a volume perspective it'll be an issue, especially for the way we do things, because each semester our students meet at a, um, what we call it in-doc, just like at the airlines, um, for a day-long orientation each semester. So new students we can process as they come in. We can go ahead and get them their student pilot certificate when they enroll in classes a month before the semester even starts. So we just make that a part of the enrollment process, and, and I don't think we have any issues with that. I don't think the university programs will see it as a problem because we're pretty much two months ahead of the semester as it is now anyway. Interesting. So, yeah, I think that it's, uh, I don't know. I think I agree with, with Eric. I think it's a great thing. And uh, moving forward, we'll see how things go. But anyway, so this is good stuff. We'll put the link out there. Uh, we, uh, I think we should all, you know, I, I've seen some comments on the internet. Just like anything else comes out and it's, oh no, you know, the sky is falling, that type of thing. Uh, give it some time. See how it works out. I think I'm, I'm the eternal optimist. So I think it will. It's going to have some bumps in the road, of course, but I think we're going to do really well with it. Uh, anyway, um, the, uh, let's see, Russ, did you have anything else on that one before we, we move on to our next topic? Oh, yeah, just real quick, uh, Erica mentioned the photo ID, well, not the photo ID, but the photos on the pilot certificate issue. Uh, as part of this rule, that whole idea is gone, apparently. So <laughs> they're no longer moving towards uh, photos on the pilot certificates. Because if they can validate it when they issue the certificate to begin with, then that's a huge burden that they don't have to deal with and they don't have to keep pictures. So I think in the long run for the aviation community, it's a good thing. And certainly for the FAA, it's way easier than what they were going to have to do. Oh, yeah. And, and the, if anybody does take the time to read the whole rule, they'll see repeatedly throughout that about the, the whole photo thing has been rescinded. So, yep. All right. Awesome. Great. Terrific stuff for us. Thanks so much for bringing that to our attention and sure. uh, for reading through the rule for us. I think that's, that's pretty terrific. Now entering cruise flight. Let's move on to our next topic, if everybody is okay with that. We have some... So really, it, you know what? It's it, what is this? It's January already, middle of January, and it's been pretty cold out there. And some of us have had to deal with icing and de-icing, etc. As a matter of fact, you know, a lot of folks listen to this, and they're from like the warmer climates, etc. But eventually, you're going to fly north, and uh, you know, like I said, I've actually flown up to to Jacksonville, Florida, and had to de-ice. 
and in Jacksonville. And, you know, when I told the people, I said, hey, I need to get de-iced. They're like, what do you mean? I said, look outside. It was actually snowing. This was a while ago, but it was a light snow, but still had to get to de-iced to, to actually take off. So you never know uh, when you might have to implement some of these cold temperature, uh, you know, different strategies, in both VFR and IFR. Today, though, what we want to start off with, and we might get to some VFR, but I really want to talk about IFR flying in the colder weather. And uh, when there's, there's all sorts of things that, that we have to be concerned with, icing, uh, altitudes, etc. The icing part of it, you know, I'd, I'd actually, we can look at some past episodes, and I'll have some links to those, and also the practical guide to winter flying and how to de-ice, etc. There's some good information there. What I want to talk about today is something that's really been at the forefront of, of a lot of what the FAA has been doing with flying in cold weather and making sure we're still safe on those approaches. And, and it really has to do with the, your actual, the required obstacle clearance from the ground. And, and we have to use an altimeter to figure out how far we are from the ground. That's what we use in our airplane. So... What we're going to discuss today are really IFR and cold temperature restricted airports. And uh, these are, are airports that have restrictions and, uh, and because of, you know, being in a very cold climate and actually, you know, having a, a lower altitude than is actually being read off your altimeter. If you remember, you know, our altimeters are reading based on the pressure and a standard temperature, you know, day. And what we're doing is we're flying at a much lower than standard temperature day. But to, to just, and that's a generalization, but what we've done, the FAA has done, is that there's a lot of people in the industry that were concerned about the possibility of having cold weather altimetry errors. You know, you've all heard that, you know, from high to low, hot to cold, look out below. And, you know, there's, and that's a great rule of thumb. But you know what the FAA did? They, they took it a step further because of a lot of people from industry that said, listen, we're really concerned about this. And they actually did a risk analysis on certain instrument approaches, uh, Part 97 instrument approaches throughout the U.S. and throughout the national airspace system. And, uh, and they actually wanted to see what, what approaches placed aircraft at risk. Uh, and, it, and what they did is, it's pretty cool, actually. The study applied to the coldest recorded temperatures at certain airports within the last five years. And they determined if there was a probability that during these non-standard operation days, the anticipated altitude errors in the barometric altimetry system could exceed exceed the required obstacle clearance and uh, at the different segments uh, of, of the approach. So... If there was a probability, by the way, if they, they would exceed that uh, and it went above the 1% on a segment of the approach, then, get that, went above, I'll say it again, 1% on the segment of that approach, a temperature restriction was applied to that segment. And, uh, and that's a very low probability, right, <laughs> to me, 1%. So what they want to do is make sure these are pre precise, but there's a lot more to this. Uh, they want, they're, they're giving us a much greater uh, margin of safety. What type of airports are we looking at? We're looking at airports, obviously, in Alaska, but even within uh, the central United States, I, I mentioned Buffalo. There's a restriction in Buffalo, and there's also a restriction, say, in Burlington, Vermont. So we'll have some links to some of those, but uh, but we're going to talk. And Russ is. I'm I'm just giving you an intro. Russ is going to go over some of the specifics as far as how do you do those different altitude corrections? Because obviously, if I'm talking about an altitude that uh, you know is going to be incorrect and it's going to be we're going to be at a lower altitude than is indicated, we have to have to figure out a way to actually correct for that. And it's on specific portions of that approach. So that's my introduction to, to Russ. And Russ is going to talk a little bit more about that. So hopefully uh, that's been a, a, you know, just a kind of a smoothing over and a little history of why we're doing this. So Russ, so what, what, what is this required you know, obstacle clearance in this cold temperature restricted airports? What is it? What is it? How does it affect me as an instrument pilot? Well, yeah, thanks, Carl. Um, it's it's a situation that, like you mentioned, we are kind of told about in private pilot training. You know, the whole high to low, you know, hot to cold, look out below, and we might be lower than our altimeter says because of non-standard temperature. Uh, which, you know, for your pi private license, you know, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of difference because you're flying VFR and you just don't fly into 
things, right? Um, as long as everybody's using the same altimeter setting uh, for uh, you know ATC purposes, uh, altitude separation works out fine. But when it does get cold, then your altimeter reads higher than you really are. Okay, and it, some references refer to this as the um, uh, what bunching up of the pressure levels or something. I'm sure that's not a very technical explanation, but uh, but there there's actually a picture in the uh, the the AIM, the uh, Aeronautical Information Manual, and there's also a correction chart. Now, at normalish temperatures, you know, where it's just a winter day and it's no big deal. The, the, the corrections are maybe, you know, 50, 80 feet, something like that. No big deal. Not going to cause a problem. But once you get, once two things happen, one, the colder it is, or two, the higher you are above the reporting station. The reporting station where you're getting a temperature from is usually the airport you're going to, of course. But the higher you are above it and the colder it is, the larger that difference in indicated versus uh, actual altitude gets. And in some cases, it can get up over 500 feet difference. Uh, the and we'll, we'll get in a couple examples later. But the pilot has always been responsible to uh, f- to inform air traffic control if they need to uh, fly higher because of this this issue. But there's never been really any focus on it. I mean, it's, it has actually been in the the AIM and and other documents for a while, but. Like I said, there's been no real focus, no real or training. I know it was briefly mentioned this topic in my private pilot training, but I got my instrument rating in Southeast Virginia. You know, we, we didn't have a whole lot of cold weather to deal with, and it just never came up. And yeah, I I certainly didn't really know much about it until I well, until I started teaching, I, I guess. But uh, so you're expected to make this manual altitude correction at at some of these these airports. What the FAA has done, like you mentioned, is done the whole study that you talked about and put on the approach chart a little snowflake icon up uh, in the briefing strip at the top, right where the the trouble T is, the, the alternate A uh, is right in that area. There's a little snowflake icon. And if you're going to an airport that has this snowflake icon, it then has a uh, a temperature right next to it. So I'm looking at, well, you mentioned Burlington, Vermont. I'm looking at it right now. It has negative 14 C or seven degrees Fahrenheit. So if the temperature is colder than that, you need to take additional steps and correct uh, the altitude you're going to fly where you on certain segments. So what that requires is then looking at the published notum uh, that you're going to have to get you know, bef- before you go fly. Uh, yeah, Carl, quick comment. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you mentioned the snowflake thing, and I think a lot of us don't really – uh, aren't used to seeing that, and they're currently they're not on every chart, are they? They're they're actually phasing this in over time. So not every temperature restricted airport has that snowflake until all the charts are are actually the terminal procedures are actually updated, the approach procedures. Excuse me. Yeah, that's correct. I, I don't now, know how far they are in, in the process there. So you have to that, be careful about that. In other words, you have to look at your notums to make sure that. Uh, if it's a temperature-restricted airport. That was just the point I wanted to make on that. I think that's – that's because uh, if you see that snowflake, boom, you know, you know you're know you restricted there. So Yeah, that's absolutely right. And the uh, the NOTAM – now, again, this is this is a published NOTAM, so a, a lot of pilots aren't either aware of this or never been trained on this. So, you, know, you go to the NOTAM website or you download NOTAMs off the internet or ForeFlight or, you know, whatever you got. Uh, this is published NOTAM, so – and we'll have a link to that. But uh, it – the whole chapter here is probably 10 pages long or so, and it lists all the airports that have any type of temperature correction required. And it lists the segment of the approach, whether it's required on the intermediate, the final, or the missed approach segment. Now, yeah, a lot of these are in Alaska, of course, is you know, no surprise to anybody. And there's a lot of more you know, northern states. But there's also some which you might not really expect. Um, you know, well, California, okay, they have a lot of mountainous, but but Arcata, California is right on the coast. That has a correction. Um, how about North Carolina, uh, Virginia, New Mexico has some airports here. You know, they have some high altitude airports too. But you know, people flying from maybe Minnesota or something don't think of New Mexico as especially cold, right? <laughs> so, but you know, Taos and uh, Angel Fire, they have corrections there too. So, um, it 
it's really it's really important, especially as the winter comes up or as, as the winter continues here, to um, to go through this notum and see if anywhere you're flying to has this um, these temperature corrections. The the latest uh, notum publication date is January seventh, so pretty recently. But this has been in there; it's in there every uh, twenty eight days. So uh, so here here's how it works. So you find your airport on here, and or, or through the snowflake on the chart, and that that would tell you to hey, look at this this notum. And there in the notum there is a table of the altitude corrections. So you get to say where you have to correct for your intermediate segment. You look at your chart and I have Burlington, Vermont up here. You need to correct your intermediate segment. It says, so let's say the reported temperature in Burlington is negative 20 degrees Celsius. Okay. I don't know that that's, I don't know what, like zero Fahrenheit or something like that. Does it ever get that temperature in Burlington, Vermont? I'm I'm pretty sure it gets there regularly, right? (laughs) So, uh, so negative 20. Now here's the thing. I mentioned that the colder temperatures is what's important, but also what's important is how high you are above the airport. Well, there are segments of this, the intermediate segment of this approach is 5,000 feet above the airport because it kind of comes over some mountainous terrain. Well, at 5,000 feet at negative 20 degrees Celsius, the correction is 710 feet. Okay. The, Minimum clearance in that segment is 500 feet above the ground. <laughs> so if you don't correct your altitude, that could possibly put you a couple hundred feet below the ground level. Wow. Um, now, that's possible. Like we mentioned, that's you know, the, the 1% uh, chance or whatever. But it's pretty obvious that this could be a very large concern. Um, so you identify that. When's the time to identify this certainly not as you're getting to the IAF or the approach right <laughs> so the time to identify this is when you're you're doing your flight planning right uh, beforehand you're going to Burlington you look up oh it's a snowflake it's a cold day I gotta I gotta check my notum before I even get in the plane and take off so you are expected to apply that altitude adjustment and you're required to tell air traffic control that hey I'm you there's exact phraseology in the notum it's you know I, I require you know, instead of 5,000, I require 5,700 feet for cold temperature operations until such and such a fix. Okay. And you're required to notify them, but you're also required to do, to make that correction. And you should, I mean, you should want to for, you know, for self-preservation. <laughs> so, um, if you're receiving vectors, same applies. Okay. So if you're receiving vectors, you're required to tell them, Hey, I can't have, you know, 5,000, I need 5,500 or whatever. Uh, so they, they won't actually automatically, I guess that's important here, they won't automatically apply the correction. You need to, to query or tell them that you need to apply that correction. Sure. Uh, and it's certainly the pilot's re- responsibility to do that. Uh, I would expect if you know, it's a busier airport and everybody's doing it, ATC might you know, advise you that it's going on. But uh, certainly it's the pilot's responsibility to, to make sure they comply. And do this correction. And some of these, if you look through this note, some of these low temperatures are not particularly low. You know, there are ones that are in the, you know, the positive degrees Fahrenheit, you know, three, six degrees Fahrenheit. This Burlington one is seven degrees Fahrenheit. So while that's certainly cold to you folks from Florida, you know, <laughs> you know it's just a normal winter day some, in some places of the country. So, um, yeah, so, so obviously a very, very important consideration, and there are charts uh, in the NOTAM, also in the aeronautical information manual as well, uh, to, to talk about this, uh, this situation, how, much, how many feet to correct for. Well, that's interesting. So, so ATC can vector you uh, onto, say, the initial or intermediate segment, and you can ask for this correction from, uh, or tell them you're needing to make this correction. Uh, but what's interesting is this this doesn't apply that to that final approach, say on uh, an instrument approach procedure that's an ILS. So once you're on the final approach fix, then you're on your way down. You still use those those minimums that are 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 in your in your uh, in your ILS procedures. Is that true? Uh, not quite. Often it is, uh, but there are approaches where they have a final adjustment, uh, and that applies to your your DA or MDA. Now since in the, the table here, the correction is much smaller, the, close, the closer in altitude you get to the airport. Uh, often these, this might be, you know, 40 feet or something like that, you know, or 60 feet, you know, higher. You're expected to apply that also. That's not at all airports. You know, every airport is differently. 
is is uh, is different with the corrections. But uh, you talking about final, we also need to make clear that a lot of approaches, especially GPS approaches, have in the text a uh, temperature limitation, and it'll say something like Barrow VNAV NA uh, below negative four degrees Celsius or something like that. This is not that. The two are separate concepts. Exactly. And now general aviation doesn't fly a whole lot of Barrow VNAV approaches, uh, but there are you know business jets and stuff that, that do, or certainly the RNAV R&P procedures, uh, same type of temperature limitation. Uh, it's based around the same concept, but it's com- a completely separate correction, and both of them may apply uh, to any approach. Right. So now, and that's really an important point I was trying to lead down this path, is that that's a, a, te- a separate limitation there uh, on, you know, the, the negative 14 or whatever it may be, you know, you, it's not authorized at this temperature. Uh, so you may not still be able to do that approach, possibly if it's a low enough temperature without a compensating uh, barrel VNAV approach or LNAV VNAV approach. So your system has to actually have that in in your aircraft, which a lot of people do not, I mean, that I know of. And it's just, it's very important to understand that. But what's interesting, too, is that a lot of these, for instance, there's a lot of operators out there uh, that aren't even allowed to do approach if it's not actually, say, an ILS approach. Because once they start getting to these te- temperature you know, they, once you're compensating, you're you're done. You can't actually fly some of those approaches unless it's an ILS procedure. So what what has happened to the utility of that that airport? Because we're all going to more towards these RNAV approaches and GPS approaches. All of a sudden now we're we're seeing that you know ILSs are still very important out there because in, in the cold temperature airports because of this you still have that guidance that physical guidance with a beam on the way down on that ILS procedure. Uh, is there any examples, Russ, of uh, you know, we were talking uh, primarily about RNAV, VNAV, where on an ILS, I don't know if you have one, where they actually have to change uh, the actual decision altitude uh, on that approach procedure. Do you have an example of that, or maybe we could find one? Well, there wouldn't be one for this, for the, the like, the barrel VNAV type thing, because that, right, right. the ILS certainly isn't affected, but but any of the um, these cold temperature restricted airports, like this one at Burlington, uh and actually, I, I gotta, I gotta look this up and see if the uh, see if the correction applies in final. Let me see. No, yeah. it only applies in the intermediate. So right. uh, the ILS there does not have an adjustment T or DA, but some uh, some will. Uh, and I mean, we could we could find examples. Uh, I can try to do that. Uh, but even even an ILS will or a VOR or whatever any kind of approach will be affected by this cold temperature restricted airport policy, if. The NOTAM identifies that airport is requiring an adjustment in final. Right, right. Uh, and then you'd have to add, you know, 40 feet or something, whatever, to your DA. Cool. Yeah, and I was kind of trying to, that's where I was trying to lead with this, is that there are times when you really, you, you have to watch and make sure that your MDA or DA decision height has has been changed. So I think the, the perception in the path past has been it's only on the intermediate uh, and the initial and intermediate that you have to make this correction. Uh, and that's kind of some of the feedback I've gotten from people. So I, that's, I think that's the reason I'm trying to make a point of this is, is to answer some of those people's questions that it can apply to your MDA or decision altitude. Right, Russ, as, as you've looked, as you talked about. Yeah, that's, that's correct. And, and I, I found, you know, another example, it's not quite an ILS, but it's a a LDA DME with glide slope. (laughs) So is that close enough? (laughs) Pretty close. (laughs) That's good enough. (laughs) At at St. George, Utah. So, uh, St. George, Utah has a, uh, a correction required in final, but not an intermediate because of the specifics of the terrain. So, uh, the adjustment of final, like I said, might be, might be reasonably small. Interesting. Interesting. So anyway, sorry I interrupted you there, but I thought that was an important point. That, that comes from some questions that people have had uh, in the past about that. It's uh, So make sure you do make these corrections on every portion of the approach then. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Make sure that this is included in the winter in your flight planning before you get an airplane. Cool. Interesting stuff. And I, I do want to comment that this, this NOTAM, of course, is available for download or whatever. I did check. I, I use ForeFlight like tons of other folks and and it is one of those documents that's available there, and I'm sure that the other um, 
the other uh, EFB type applications would have this as well. Okay. Well, sorry, I, I think I, I may have kind of thrown you off course on that one there, but that is something that I, I think people don't, don't, because uh, a lot of people say, well, if it's an ILS, it doesn't matter, but it does. It matters on, on all approaches, uh, this cold temperature conversion. Uh, and also the other thing too is uh, when you're being vectored, if you, again, I think that's an important point to, to tell them that you are going to compensate for this. Uh, because if you don't, and it's an altitude bust, you know, but most importantly, don't hit the ground. You know, that that's really, really important. And just one other thing too, by the way, if it is cold, say, I mean, it can get to like negative 30 degrees and at 5,000 feet, you're looking at like a thousand feet off, you know, that that's just, just amazing yeah, how, that's right. how far that's, that's incredible. That's quite a bit. Um, but, and those, those charts can be found uh, obviously in the notices to airmen publication. So that's pretty cool stuff. Anyway, I'm sorry, Russ. Uh, what was the next thing we we're going to talk about on that? No, I, I think I oh, got it. Was, right? I think oh, we got it. <laughs> okay, good. So, so that's as far as what we were talking. And this is, by the way, uh, again, we're we're not just doing flight instruction here. We're trying to introduce you to this whole cold weather, you know, cold uh, temperature uh, error table, and also the cold temperature restricted airports. Uh, this is by no means a you know extensive instruction on how to use it. We're making you aware of this, but just really be sure that you actually uh, tell, you know, go out there and tell your instructor to actually go through this in the, because there's so much more to, to this than what we're just talking about. This is a very good overview that you've done, Russ, and this is awesome. But things like your your cold temperature error tables, those have been out there for a long time, just like Russ said. You know, the, these are the AIKO tables have been out there. Your notices to airmen publications have them. You can also go to the... Uh, the, the approach plates, the terminal procedures, uh, you can actually find them in there. A lot of really good information about the cold temperature restricted airports. There's also some really interesting stuff in the uh, uh, the information for operators that you should look at uh, that has some really cool stuff and has some you know mandatory compliance uh, with these cold temperature restrictions in, in different areas within the country and some that are, like you said, I mean, they, they're they surprising that they're out there. Uh, but in a lot of the different uh, places you would think of, yes, that they would be, like New York. But then there's other ones like Nevada. Uh, you look at Reno and you forget that Reno's way up there and those type of things. So it's, that's great that you've brought that up. So uh, good stuff for us. I really appreciate that as far as work, you know, rely, you know doing your, your research and this cold temperature conversions. Uh, this is a great introduction. I, I thank you so much for that. But now let's let's kind of switch a little bit to our our looking at the cold temperatures and operating in VFR conditions and some of the concerns we might have there. Uh, we don't have a ton of time to talk about it, but I would like to go over a couple of things that that we need to be you know aware of as far as operating in a VFR environment. And you know I, I think. I need to ask both guys that, that fly a lot of VFR, and that's Larry and, and Tom. And I guess, um, I, I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask Tom this. I mean, Tom, do you are you really concerned? I mean, you're, you're here an instructor in Florida. Does this really concern you much as far as flying I, excuse me, VFR in colder weather? Does that really concern you? Um, not really because, um, you know, this time of year and even into January, I mean, the freezing level – usually doesn't get below, eh, I'm going to say six, 7,000 feet here in Florida. Now, um, we don't teach up that high. Most of our ground here is sea level, so um, we, don't have to, we don't have to climb up that high. Now, it's definitely part of the training, and, it, and, and we go through it a lot. We just don't deal with it a lot. We might have you know, maybe one or two frost days a year, but even those, are, they're short-lived. It's gone by sunrise or, or very soon thereafter. Right. But, but just as a, as a Florida instructor, uh, and a student comes to you and says, listen, I'm going to do most of my flying up to Georgia. I'm going to do most of my flying up to Asheville, say, going to North Carolina, South Carolina. Uh, this is something that, that I'm, I'm sure that we need to bring into their, into their realm of knowledge. Because an airplane can get pretty far pretty quickly. And, and this is something that I think uh, a lot of us in Florida aren't used to. Like we look at frost and things like that. And those are really important things to consider when we're operating an aircraft in the colder weather. Uh, but, you know, someone like Larry, Larry, you're, you're used to this. I mean, this must be in a daily occurrence. Uh, what are the concerns when you run out to the airport uh, and you have to operate, say, in negative 30, negative 40 degrees? Tell us a little bit about that, and then I'll, I'll go over some of the things that I want to talk about about cold weather operations. 
Well, my, my club has a cutoff of not operating aircraft below 20 degrees above zero. Um, so I just don't have to deal with that at all. Wow. Interesting. Because so, they won't let me. They won't let you. That's that's really interesting. But I'm sure you've flown some planes in really cold weather. I mean, besides that you're closer. Yeah. I, I think the most the most dangerous thing I've done is stepped up onto a wing of a Blanca Viking and slipped off because of the frost on it. Um, <laughs> uh, prior to de-icing, obviously, I was trying to get something out of the cabin. But um, uh, I really don't, you know, since my, my job doesn't require that I fly or whatever, I, I don't enjoy flying if it's, you know, real bitter out. Um, and so I generally don't do a whole lot. Right, right. Well, I tell you, I, you know, I've flown a lot in the colder weather and I've delivered airplanes in the middle of the night up to Canada in the January and there are quite a few concerns. Uh, certain, yeah, here's the thing. Any aircraft and their components has limitations and they're, they're designed to operate within certain ranges. And you, you know what? If you don't know the ranges, look them up. You know, ask people. Look at the the pilots operating handbook, airport, the airplane flying manual, etc. Ask your local mechanics too. Ask them and say, "Hey, listen, can you teach me a little bit about flying in colder weather?" I'll give you a good example. I um, I used to go up to Calgary and up in Canada and deliver airplanes for maintenance. And sometimes I would have to fly at like three in the morning and land at three in the morning. Well, sometimes on certain airplanes, usually it's around negative 40 degrees when you start having certain limitations as to, you know, shutting the engine off and starting the engine and landing in certain temperatures. And there's certain restrictions on uh, the temperatures on those aircraft. A lot, Like I said, a lot of times it's negative 40. So if you were to land at, say, negative 41 degrees, that's going to require a maintenance inspection. You're also going to need to make sure you get the aircraft into a hangar fairly quickly. So we, we need to look at those things. First of all, if you're not flying, you know, and, and you don't have to do it, you know, you're not probably going to go up on that kind of a negative 40 type of day, I would hope. Uh, but, you know, the, you know, it really is a good idea. You know, these are mechanical components to actually make sure that, that you keep the engines warm. I know there's a lot of folks that uh, are up in North Dakota that fly. Those flight schools run all year long. Uh, they place actually blankets over the wings uh, after their land. They keep the engine cowling warm. People in Alaska always, you know, use insulation. And uh, just as far as, as warming up those engines, too, there's another thing we can do. We can put place aircraft in the hangars, but we also can use an external heater uh, into the engine. But what's really important about flying VFR in these really cold weather days, or any aircraft really, in a real cold weather day, is to understand how to use that equipment and that's going to heat up the aircraft. And what the what are, are some of the hazards? For instance, you know, it, components within the aircraft can also melt. And if you're using a heater that is too hot, it can actually cause damage to the aircraft and certain components. So there's another thing we have to worry about. The thing that's helping us heat the engine may actually be the thing that hurts us. You know, it was interesting. Um, I had a... a, a a tomahawk I used to fly all the time, and there's a plug inside the uh, in the cowling, and it's like, what's that plug for? Well, that that's the plug so we can heat up the oil, and it's like, well, what's that doing there? And oh, that's because they the actual you know airplane used to fly up north, up in the you know northern climates that, and and there were some issues there with getting the the oil to a proper temperature, so they would actually you know, warm it up. But there's many different things. Uh, a, a good example, too, uh, something I always like to mention to people, are like, well, you know, what's going to happen? Like, for instance, uh, another thing to think about, your oil breathers on, on our reciprocating engines, obviously. Uh, you know, you have to be careful with those because even within the, the, you know, that's your breather for the crankcase, you can actually get a frozen line in there. And, you know, because remember, when after you operate the aircraft, uh, there's vapors, and those vapors cool. What happens? They freeze, and they might condense and actually freeze close. So, you know, again, a good uh, you know pre-flight is necessary, and make sure that you actually are able to warm that engine up enough prior to going to fly. Uh, you know, you have battery issues, you have wheels, etc. So, I think it's really. The, the, the point being here as far as flying VFR, and obviously we don't have a lot of time to go into everything, is to understand those limitations on the fuel, the oil, the engine, understand how to actually 
heat up your engine or heat up your aircraft to get it prepared for its next flight. Uh, I know the club that uh, I used to be in in New Jersey, we would actually uh, have somebody come out, uh, an instructor or one of the members that has a lot of experience, show you how to actually use the heater and to properly heat the engine. Uh, I know that, uh, Russ, you actually did some flying up in the northern climates, did you not? I'm pretty sure you did, right? And I think you said Ohio. Yeah, well, it was, it was north enough for me. It was Ohio. Yeah. So <laughs> and they, that, that's that's pretty southerly by some standards, but it was far enough north for me. And yeah, we had some pretty some pretty cold uh, pretty cold weather. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the the school I was teaching at up there had a, a temperature limit of five degrees Fahrenheit for dual instructional flights, ten degrees for solo flights. So it had to be a little warmer, but. Uh, um, yeah, I thought that was pretty crazy when I first started. Who would fly at five degrees until, uh, well, I did it because, well, a student was on the schedule, and that's <laughs> what it was, and it was a beautiful, clear day, right? <laughs> it was just five degrees Fahrenheit. But there, uh, and, and what other things did they tell you about as far as cold weather operations, what you need to be careful? Of? Well, you know, the, the, the best way, the, by far the best way to make sure everything's good is to keep that airplane in a hangar somewhere, you know. So uh, that school, if they could, you know, if they had room in the hangar and they'd have some, you know, a uh, corporate jet in there or something, they'd put all the planes in every day and take them out in the morning. Um, so that does the best job of keeping the, uh, you know, everything warm. Because it's not, you know, it, everybody focuses on the engine. It's not just the engine, although that's very important, of course, you mm-hmm. know. But it's the... Uh, you know the the gyros in the in the cockpit too. They get cold, and you know they they don't work quite as well, or they the accelerated wear on those, and and uh, you know the water freezing on the the brakes, and you know the, the cold temperatures. The tires aren't very flexible. You know it's just a whole assortment of things that that you just really need to start paying attention to as the as the temperature goes down. Yeah, and, and exactly like you were saying, you know, in the and preheating and and removing all the frost and snow, getting it in the hangar can also be a bad thing. And it's like, well, Carl, why is that? Well, because you can actually have the aircraft in the hangar, and say you have frost or snow on the aircraft, and it starts to melt. Some of that water may get caught, say in the elevator and the trim. I actually had this happen to me in the near the trim tabs. And uh, I was a cold day. I had it in the hangar, brought the, it was a Cessna 172. We took off, started flying, and lo and behold, the, the uh, trim tab got frozen uh, because some of the water went back, and actually it was the actuator, but it, it froze in place, and we couldn't move it. So that was kind of a pain in the butt, you know, that we're having to hold pressure for so long. We had to, you know, terminate the flight, obviously, but it was trimming towards, you know, the up position, so we had to turn around and come back. Uh, so those are those are issues there too that we really need to to think about, and uh, you know hopefully hopefully we aren't. I know Russ uh, that that we we're not scaring people from flying on, on, in the winter, but there's a lot of things we really need to think about when we're doing winter flying. I pers- personally have done a lot of my flying in the winter, uh, and I as far as I know, you guys talked about certain temperature limitations. We we used to just go. Uh, no matter what, as long as we properly pre did a pre-flight of the aircraft and we also uh, did uh, proper preparation. Uh, I've flown in the winters uh, in many different states up north. So uh, I do it all the time now, obviously, because of my job. I'm out there. Uh, we When we do fly in the winter, uh, it's obviously just another normal day, but with a little heightened uh, sense of awareness. Uh, making sure that certain uh, things aren't blocked on the aircraft and also making sure that there's nothing on the wings. Uh, doing de-icing on a small aircraft is really important. Uh, and just don't, <laughs> I tell you, there's many ways to de-ice an aircraft. You don't have to use fluids. You can just wait for the sun to come up and, and face it into sun, that type that type of thing. But, uh, but Russ, I think you have a good point, though, uh, is that, you know, about uh, flying in the winter. And, and what is what is that? Should, should people be afraid of flying in the winter? Well, no. It, it, in fact, some winter flying can be fantastic. Usually, you know, often visibility is really, really good. And, of course, the aircraft performance is amazing. You know, that that uh, Cessna 172 is all of a sudden like a 182 or something, right, when you on climb out. Uh, you, you just need to be in, just be thorough. Uh, you know, there's, there are just different considerations than when it's a, you know, a summer day, which has its own separate considerations, of course. But, uh, you know, just being thorough, exactly like you mentioned, uh, if there's – all kinds of snow and frost on the wings and you pull it in the hangar. Well, you want to make sure that that doesn't melt and get in other places. You know? So yeah, just, just doing a real thorough preflight and understanding the limitations, like you mentioned before, knowing the differences. And if you haven't flown much in, in the winter, grab someone who has grab an instructor and, uh, and have them show you those kind of things. 
You know, I, I think that's a great, great point, Russ. You know, during takeoffs in cold weather, I mean, there's a lot of advantages, right? I mean, there are, our engines actually perform better. But uh, again, with that, you also have to be careful. You don't say you got a, a supercharged engine or then or turbocharged. Then you have to also be careful that you don't, don't overboost that engine at the colder temperatures uh, and make sure there's, you know, what the limits are on that. Uh, and remember, too, what on a multi-engine, if you're flying a twin, uh, you know, that VMC was determined what? At sea level, standard day, it's a colder day. So therefore, your, your VMC is going to be higher than published on a colder than, you know, normal day. So you have to, to kind of compensate there. Uh, so really, you know, using carburetor heat, that type of thing, if, you know, icing conditions exist, you know, remember that you need to go out there and, and uh, do, do what it says in the airplane flight manual and, and, and make sure that you've prepared that aircraft for flying that day and you're prepared for flying that day. So there's, there's all these considerations, and I think that's what we're trying to do is, is, is make you aware of those things and not, not scare you off from it, but definitely be aware of, of what, we're, what you should do prior to going out and flying in the winter. I absolutely love flying in the winter. The, the plane jumps off the runway. Uh, I get into the aircraft, especially on a sunny day. I love to go out because I feel, you know, warmer in the aircraft, the heater's on, you know, obviously that's another thing we have to think about on the heater is, is make sure, you know, we're not getting carbon monoxide poisoning, that type of thing. But we have indicators for that, uh, you know, understand what the, what your, you know, the implications are there and, uh, you know, you know, what their symptoms of that are. Uh, so there's all those kind of things we need to, to be aware of. So really, this is something that cold weather operating is a wonderful thing. Uh, we need to also think about, uh, you know, if we were to land off airport, what type of things we need to have with us. And, uh, you know, always, you know, one instructor told me always bring uh, those things that, uh, you know, to wear that you would wear on the ground over the area that you're flying. I thought that was some good advice because sometimes I would just, you know, on a cold weather day, sometimes I just put a sweater, a light, light sweater on and go in the aircraft. But what if I had to do a, an off airport landing or, or landed another airport and that's all I had was my little light sweater and it was like 20 degrees out. And uh, then I would be just freezing cold when I'm trying to fill up that uh, <laughs> airplane with, with fuel again. But uh, anyway, guys, this has been a, a good discussion. Anybody else have any thoughts as far as uh, cold weather operating and, and uh, anything to add to that, uh, you know, Larry, Russ, um, anything, and Tom, anything else that we want to add to that? Well, I think that's it. This, Go ahead, Larry. Yeah, this is Larry. Um, uh, I'll just toss out my favorite way to do cold weather flying uh, up here in the north, and that is to uh, seek out a simulator. Um, <laughs> and uh, you can, uh, you know, for, for people like me who, uh, you know, maybe instrument rated, but I don't fly on instruments, um, and shoot approaches often enough to just stay current normally, you know. So I'm I'm working with an instructor or a fellow pilot uh, from time to time anyway. And um, I just noticed that a local airport here around me has a full motion Redbird simulator for eighty four dollars an hour. So I think I may uh, take advantage of that and uh, go out and have a little bit of fun with it and um, uh, try shooting some approaches with it and you know use that as a, a way to tide myself over for the um, the winter time. Awesome. That's a great idea. You know, get out there and use that simulator, especially if it's really icing. Uh, I know I've I've learned, did a lot of work in flight schools up in uh, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania area, and I think that's a that's a great, great idea. Uh, but anyway, so that's that was our introduction to cold weather flying, both IFR and VFR. Uh, obviously, the, the big thing, you know, cold temperature restricted airports we wanted to introduce to you. Uh, also, hopefully, we've given you a little bit of an overview and have actually, you know, Hopefully, you know, we're, we're making you think about what to do in winter, and maybe we're going to, we're, you know, getting you to move towards your instructor to actually go to them and talk to them for, about some advice as far as operating in the cold temperatures, because a lot of our listeners do do that often. So do I, and I think it's wonderful, beautiful sights to see. Our picks of the week. Anyway, well, let's move on to our next uh, pick of the week. We actually have picks of the week. Uh, and uh, Eric Crump, by the way, had to get offline. He had to go to a meeting this evening for what he's doing in the D.C. area, and we can't wait to hear back from him on that. Uh, but uh, a big shout-out to, to what Eric is doing over there and, uh, and all the things he's doing at the Polk State College. So I'm going to you know, just uh, mention that if you could go to Polk State College and, and check out their website, we'll have a link there. But anyway, uh, let's start with, uh, I think it was Tom Frick that had a pick of the week he wanted to mention first. So let's go to Tom. What is your pick of the week? Yeah, with all this discussion about uh, ice and flying and, and weather, uh, my pick of the week is Weather Flying by uh, Robert Buck. 
Um, this this book is, you know, if you, most people Great. are probably, yeah, most people have already, it's considered like the Bible of weather flying, you know, it's just um, really great information in this thing. Um, it was written by Robert N. Buck, who, uh, who passed away in 2007, and then his son, Robert O. Buck, took over and, and kind of re-upped it again. They're up to like the fifth edition, but there is just amazing information in here about the evolution of weather and how it pertains to aviation, and if you've never read it, this is a must-read uh, as far as pertaining to weather aviation. Awesome. That's good stuff. I tell you, I, that was one of my first introductions to weather flying, and uh, I still keep it. I have the reference right here. Uh, I have it sitting here, and it's uh, it's uh, an old book, but it still it still applies, so that's a great one. So, Russ, uh, what is your pick of the week? Yeah, it's a, I've got a uh, – it's actually a museum, and it's uh, pretty local here in, in Oklahoma. It's uh, the Stafford Air and Space Museum. It's uh, about 50 miles west of Oklahoma City, so not – you know, a whole lot out there, but it's along I-40 and there's an airport. It's actually on the airport there at uh, Weatherford Airport, Oklahoma, uh, identifier OJA. And, you know, for being where it is, it's a really incredible museum. I mean, it's it's named for uh, uh, General Tom Stafford, uh, who was an astronaut uh, in the Gemini program. Uh, he was also on uh, Apollo 10 uh, the like the dress rehearsal for the moon landing, where they flew around the moon and you know looked at the landing sites and, and that kind of did everything except for actually landing. And so they've got a lot of uh, NASA type exhibits, space exhibits. I think they had a chunk of a moon rock or something there. But they've also got a, quite a few airplanes and uh, rocket engines and all this kind of stuff. And for especially you know, given the location where you might not expect to find you know, such a such a neat uh, resource, it's it's an interesting place if you're passing through either driving because it's right off I forty, so you're driving coast to coast, one of these uh, interesting stop, or um, or flying through. Uh, they have courtesy cars available and such. So uh, just just a real neat real neat place, and uh, certainly not not very expensive or anything either too. Interesting. Yeah, I definitely have to make it to that one. So, that, again, that was the uh, StaffordMuseum.com, I think it was. Uh, yeah, that's the website, StaffordMuseum.com. It's the Stafford Air and Space Museum in Weatherford, Oklahoma. Weatherford, Oklahoma. Cool. Definitely going to have to pop in there. Maybe when I come yeah. up and visit, Russ, we'll go do that. Sure. That's, yeah. a, that's a great idea. Have a little fun flying around in some of that colder weather up there and then going to, <laughs> into a museum to warm up. <laughs> 57 degrees today, remember? 57. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, isn't that great, though? I mean, January, that's, that's terrific. But... Uh, Anyway, my my pick of the week uh, actually is something I was going to put in the announcements, but I'll do it as a pick of the week. It's uh, you know a lot of people are looking for money for flight training, whether it's for school or for their own recreation. And uh, as you know, I've published a scholarships guide for years, and our 2016 guide is actually coming out in the next week, and that's going to be uh, aerospacescholarships.com. And you can purchase it there. It'll also, the 2016 guide will soon be in Amazon. And if you purchase the Aerospace Scholarships 2016 at the website and just the scholarships guide alone, it's only $10. You actually get the four updates throughout the year of that file. It's a PDF file for download. Uh, or obviously there's memberships at aviationcareerspodcast.com for that. But the Aerospace Scholarships uh, book has grown tremendously. And uh, we actually, uh, this is a project I started years ago. And now we have a staff of people just working on scholarships on a consistent basis. And they're constantly updated and we're constantly adding to them. And this week we're coming out with the 2016 guide. So that's mine. Aerospacescholarships.com is where you can find that book or go to Amazon, look for Aerospace Scholarships. Anyway, uh, Larry, what is your pick of the week? Yeah, um, I'm going to give you one now, and then I'm going to come back uh, perhaps at a later time and review it. But uh, I came across an app that I thought was uh, really pretty interesting and read a little bit about it and ended up buying it. Uh, it's called the Jacobson Flare. It's J-A-C-O-B-S-O-N. And apparently this guy has been... Um, trying to uh, preach a little bit about a different way to approach the uh, final part of landing, right? You know, right as you're coming down to the runway and flare and the, in terms of where you're aiming and, you know, what the feel is and what the motion of the controls are. Um, one of the things that he talks about is that the technique is identical, whether you're flying a 150 or a 777. And um, the size of the airplane doesn't matter. The numbers change. Um, but anyway, the, the app was a little bit pricey. I think it was a little over $20. Um, 
but it appears to be pretty extensive. And I figured if uh, if I can get one, you know, one or two tips out of it that uh, saved me a bad landing someday, um, it'd be well worth it. So I'm just starting it now. Um, so check back with me in a, a few weeks, and I'll I'll let you know how uh, how how it's helping. Cool, Larry. Well, we'll we'll get that update hopefully soon. And I really appreciate you doing that. The after landing checklist. Well. Guys, this has been great. A great talk about uh, winter weather flying. I really encourage people to get out there and fly during the winter. I love uh, getting up in the air on those crisp, cool days, looking at uh, the sunrise, the sunsets over that, you know, the the beautiful landscape and the snow-covered uh, landscape that you get to see when you go fly up north. If you're living in the south, remember it affects you, cold weather flying. If you're doing an instrument approach in the cold weather, it will affect you too. Uh, obviously, most of us that are flying in cold weather, during those uh, instrument approach procedures, we have icing or anti-icing or de-ice, and it's something to, to be aware of. Obviously, this is just a, a start to this, but what we really want you to do, and what we encourage you to do, is to go out. We'll have links to those notums, to actually all those info notices and to look at that cold weather flying as something that's a lot of fun and can be really, really a great thing to do and to show your family, your friends, uh, you know, what it's like to be up in the air during these cold weather days and how the aircraft performs, but also the beautiful things we get to see. It's also challenging in the instrument approach procedures, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, but, of course, it can be safe. It's just as safe as the pilot. You know, use those procedures. Go out there. Get with your instructor. Understand what it's like to fly during those cold weather days. Understand what you need to do with your aircraft and operate it properly on those cold weather days. Well, from myself and everybody here at the Stuck Mike Avcast, we really appreciate your listening this week, and we can't wait to talk to you again next episode. Fly safe. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.